The Radical Wesley, Chapter 12, Wesley and the Church Today. Two tasks remain. In this final chapter, I wish to make a biblical critique of some aspects of Wesley's perspective, then to draw together several strands which are especially important for our experience in the church today. A Biblical Critique Every major figure in the drama of God's plan of salvation has suffered much at the hands of his or her friends. Like the Corinthian believers, God's people begin to call themselves after the name of one or another of God's apostles, forming feuding factions. One of the reasons for this is that later generations in a religious movement failed to keep the original leader's breadth of insight. They tend to focus on one or two points rather than maintaining the balance and breadth of the whole gospel. Now we see darkly and partially. We fail to see the whole picture, and even when we see it, we betray part of it in practice. Inevitably, it seems, we wander at least a few degrees off course, to the right or left. Part of the Spirit's renewing work in history is to correct the course of the church, bringing it back to the recovery of neglected biblical truth. So it is with John Wesley. He recovered a biblical balance at several key points. In the providence of God and the course of history, he was uniquely placed to combine in himself and in early Methodism truths and insights which seldom in church history have been found together in such creative tension. We must insist that our source, however, is Jesus Christ, Lord of the Church, uniquely revealed in Scripture. We dare to follow Wesley, Luther, Calvin, or anyone else only to the extent that they follow Jesus. The church's task in every age is not only to learn from God's work in history, but also to continually subject history to the norm of the biblical revelation. Throughout this book, we have noticed the points at which John Wesley rediscovered biblical themes or sustained a balance between seemingly contradictory truths. There are points, however, where biblical questions need to be raised about Wesley's understanding of the church. It seems to me that Wesley's affirmation of both the institutional and charismatic dimensions of the church and Christian experience is true both to biblical and post-biblical history. I have no major critique of his understanding of Christian experience, the corporate life of the church, or fundamental Christian doctrine. Others approaching Wesley from different theological perspectives and traditions will of course, disagree at some of these points. I would, however, raise three questions that tie in especially with the theme of this book. These concern Wesley's understanding of ministry, his social and political outlook, and his view of the kingdom of God. Number one, Wesley's view of ministry. For an age that was nervous about anything having to do with spiritual gifts or direct experience of the Holy Spirit, labeled enthusiasm, Wesley's openness to the gifts of the Spirit was remarkable. Ever the ardent experientialist, Wesley was always watching to see what God would do next. He was disposed to see God at work in unconventional ways and unexpected places. Noting that God blessed his own preaching more because of Aldersgate than Oxford, he was able to see that God was ready and willing to work through unusual channels and unordained preachers. As Wesley's ministry developed and he began sending forth a whole regiment of traveling preachers, two operations were open to him to explain biblically what was happening. 
One would have been a radical affirmation of the doctrine of the priesthood of believers, an assertion that biblically and in God's plan, every believer is called to minister and that the various forms of ministry are based on the charismatic work of the Holy Spirit rather than institutional accreditation by the church. The other option, which Wesley essentially took, was to admit the normal validity of ecclesiastical ordination, but to see the Holy Spirit as breaking through this mold and creating an extraordinary pattern of ministry in a fashion outside, but somewhat parallel to normal ecclesiastical structures. These two options may not really be mutually exclusive. As noted, Wesley did incorporate the charismatic emphasis to some extent. On the other hand, it seems to me that Wesley did not go far enough in this direction. He did not sufficiently stress the revolutionary implications of the priesthood of believers and the gifts of the Spirit for the ministry of the church. It is clear that Wesley's extraordinary ordinary distinction regarding gifts and offices in the church was functionally important to his view of ministry. The church has an ordinary, ecclesiastically accredited, ordained ministry. But because of the fallen nature of the church— the Holy Spirit from time to time must break through this encrusted structure and create an extraordinary ministry for renewing the church. The problem here, as already noted, is that this is not a biblical distinction. It does not erase the unbiblical clergy-laity split, but simply, in effect, redefines and broadens the clergy category. The result? When Methodism later separated from the Church of England, Wesley's lay preachers simply became the Methodist clergy. For more than half a century, laymen had no effective voice within Methodist structure. Partly in protest, the Free Methodists and other groups from their beginning provided for equal lay and clergy representation in church government. But of course, this also did not get to the core of the problem. The biblical understanding of ministry combines the priesthood of believers, the gifts of the Spirit, and the fact that all believers are servants and ministers of Jesus Christ. The clergy or professional religionist category is wiped out. The priesthood is expanded to include all believers under the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. The fullness of grace found in Jesus is apportioned to the whole body so that each believer receives one or more spiritual gifts for the common good. So the New Testament differentiation is not between ministers and laymen, but between varieties of ministries flowing from the gracious work of the Spirit. The equipping ministries, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, do not constitute the ministry or a new hierarchy, but function to equip the whole body for ministry. All of this is clearly taught in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 1 through 4, 1 Peter, and elsewhere. What would have happened had Wesley seen his preachers and other helpers in this more fully biblical way? For one thing, he probably would have been even more open to commissioning a wide variety of ministers, including women. On the other hand, he might have become even more embroiled in controversy because he would have been seen as undercutting the very institution of the clergy. Clergymen, like all professionals, very quickly take on the mentality of a closed club and have sensitive antennae for picking up any threats to their clerical status and privileges. And yet, a more fully biblical view of ministry certainly would have been compatible with Wesley's ecclesiology. It would have given him a more consistent and thoroughly biblical theory of the church and would have strengthened both his ecclesiology and the enduring dynamic of the Methodist movement. The partial implication for today, 
affirm the New Testament view of ministry and make structural provision for implementing it. This should not be threatening to ordained ministers if they concentrate on their proper calling as equippers and on their particular gifts God has granted them. This is, in fact, the way to escape the frustration of trying to be all things to all people. Number two, social and political outlook. Wesley was a political and religious conservative who only gradually changed his views because of what he saw God actually doing. It seems that Wesley changed his opinions more regarding the church than regarding politics and the state. This is understandable since the church was his primary sphere of activity. He remained an ardent monarchist and political conservative in the face of more democratic currents. For this reason, Wesley is not always a good guide on social and political questions, nor consequently on questions of the social, political, and economic implications of the gospel. The Anabaptists developed their views on pacifism and the role of the state partly because they were forced outside of a political ecclesiastical system that could not stand the idea of separation between church and state. Two hundred years later, Wesley was the heir of the toleration that developed in large measure because of the impact of the Radical Reformation and the believers' churches. Had Wesley run afoul of the government and the law in the same way that he clashed with church tradition, he might well have become a radical in his politics and his social ethics as he became in his understanding of the church. This does not, of course, answer the question as to what a biblically sound social and political perspective would look like. All this is a way of saying that Wesley developed an essentially sound and biblical understanding of the nature of Christian discipleship and the church, but never fully thought through the social and political implications of such a vision. Without attempting to argue here for any particular socio-ethical understanding of the gospel, I would suggest at least that a more thoroughgoing and biblical engagement with this question is needed today than Wesley was forced or able to make. For example, consider Wesley's reaction to the industrialization of England. He had deep compassion for the laboring victims of this emerging system and worked for its humanization, but he made no fundamental critique of the free enterprise system. A century later in England, Karl Marx did, but unfortunately with an anti-Christian bias. It has been said that the Wesleyan revival saved England from political revolution. It is possible that a more radical socio-ethic in Methodism could have saved the world from the communist revolution a century and a half later by making it unnecessary. One wonders. Some will argue that Wesley's political and religious views were inextricably and necessarily connected. I would argue, rather, that the trajectory of Wesley's whole life was toward a biblical worldview, but that he went further in the area of the church and Christian experience than in the social and political realm. In many ways, he was ahead of his time even in this area. However, as seen most clearly in his vigorous opposition to the institution of slavery. One implication here, we do not have to buy into Wesley's social and political views in order to appreciate his ecclesiology. Rather, given his understanding of the church, to the degree it is biblical, the present task is to understand and incarnate the social, political, and economic implications of that view. 3. The Kingdom of God A progressive dynamic understanding of salvation underlies all of John Wesley's thoughts, 
This is most clear and impressive in his doctrine of grace and his understanding of sanctification, which in Wesley is much more dynamic than in many of his later interpreters. Yet a certain tension exists between the static and dynamic elements in Wesley's understanding of salvation. Even though he saw sanctification as deeply dynamic and progressive, he was not entirely free of the classical Greek notion of perfection as changelessness and salvation as the attainment of the eternal blessedness which is essentially static. This tension sometimes shows up when Wesley speaks of God's kingdom. He often describes the kingdom of God as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans fourteen seventeen. He characteristically cites this verse when he refers to the kingdom and seldom refers to other passages which speak of other dimensions of God's reign. For Wesley, the kingdom of God is fundamentally the direct experience of God through Jesus Christ. Wesley was quick to stress the present implications of the gospel and the requirement of the obedience of good works, as we have noted. But underlying this seems to be the suspicion that the only real significance of good works and of the present life is their function in preparing us for eternity, conceived in somewhat static terms. This stasis is less true, however, in Wesley's late sermons, where his thoughts about the new creation become more dynamic. We must walk a careful line here. The final goal of salvation in Scripture does involve eternal life in the immediate presence of God. And certainly our present experience of the gospel loses all ultimate meaning if this eternal dimension is obscured. But in Scripture, even eternal existence is seen in dynamic rather than static terms. The Bible draws no absolute discontinuity between present life and history and the final culmination of the kingdom of God. Time is more than just the dressing room for eternity. It has meaning and purpose as the arena of God's present activity and as the playing field for the history-long struggle between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And the final victory of God's kingdom in some ways involves the created order, as Wesley himself insisted in his late sermons. This is not to make a fundamental criticism of Wesley, but rather to point out a tendency— Certainly, the dialectic between time and eternity, between process and stasis, runs throughout Wesley's thought. But perhaps Wesley's immersion in the early Greek and medieval Christian tradition kept him from being fully biblical at this point, with the result that Wesley's understanding of the kingdom of God did not give sufficient weight and meaning to the work and witness of the church in the temporal order. The implications here tie in with the matters discussed earlier regarding the social and political meaning of the gospel. What has all this to do with the life and experience of today's church? Primarily this, we must determine our understanding of the kingdom of God and of the church's agency in the kingdom on the basis of the biblical revelation. The body of Christ is to be an eschatological and messianic community of the kingdom in a more fundamentally important sense than Wesley perhaps understood. Thus, we come back to the question of the life and witness of the Christian community, the church. The shape of the church. John Wesley was nothing if not practical. He showed that a high standard of Christian perfection was intensely practical. Both his understanding of the church and the experience of early Methodism speak pointedly to the life of the people of God today. In concluding this study, we may summarize the main points at which Wesley's understanding of the church speaks most potently to our present situation. It seems to me that the following points speak with special seriousness to a biblically faithful recovery of the life of the church. 
Number one, the church must exercise discipline based on a covenant commitment to Christian community. A personal commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior must be tied to a covenant commitment to the body of Christ. Believers must be ready to take some agreed responsibility for their own lives and for the lives of their sisters and brothers in the faith. Learning what it means in practice that you can't be connected to the head without being connected to the body. Commitment to Christ, no matter how sincere, has a way of evaporating with time if not tied to and reinforced by specific commitments and disciplines which undergird the corporate experience of the Christian community. This kind of commitment is necessary if the body of Christ is to live and maintain the virtues of the kingdom of God within an agnostic or apathetic cultural environment. Only a covenant community can give effective witness to the kingdom. Only a covenant community has the sociological strength to be a Christian counterculture in a hedonistic, distracted society. Some people are understandably reluctant to set specific disciplines or covenant commitments for fear of legalism and of establishing non-biblical barriers to faith or to entrance into the church. How can the church, for instance, require certain lifestyle patterns which are not prescribed in the Bible? Can the church ever be less welcoming than was Jesus? The answer is twofold. First, corporate disciplines should not be equated with salvation itself. This would undercut salvation by faith and confuse justification with sanctification. Discipline has the relationship to justification that works have to faith, the necessary and natural expression of a genuine encounter with God. Second, discipline and covenant commitment are most effectively and wholesomely expressed at the level of the ecclesiola, the small group. In the case of Methodism, this commitment and discipline function through the classes and bands. It seems that only in this way can discipline operate in an organic and spiritually vital rather than institutional and legalistic way. The fundamental fact here, the church is always a voluntary community, but this is the church's strength, not its weakness. The whole idea of covenant is based on willing commitment, not coercion. It is this covenant commitment which makes discipline possible. Because the commitment is earnest and serious, the covenant provides for excluding from the committed community those who flagrantly violate the covenant, those Wesley-styled disorderly walkers. People enter covenant community in effect by contract. The parties agree that the violation of the contract is justifiable cause for exclusion and separation. Since the covenant is willingly entered into, Exclusion or excommunication for violation of the covenant is not unjust or arbitrary. It is seen not as an institutional act, but as a necessary consequent of the violation of a trust. And when such discipline operates at the level of small groups or ecclesial subcommunities functioning within a broad concept of the universal church, such exclusion is not necessarily a judgment about final salvation. Number two. The church needs normative structures for community, discipline, and mission. Such structures may not assume the specific forms of the bands or classes, but however they are structured, they should exercise the same basic functions. The whole tenor of this book suggests the need for some sort of committed small group structures for the vitality and renewal of the larger church. The story of the radical Wesley indicates some of the dynamics involved in the life and structure of such groups and in their relationship to the larger body of Christ. 
This is not to suggest that small group structures should be directly patterned after the class or band meetings, but it is to suggest the need for something more than merely fellowship, study, or prayer groups. The Methodist system shows the need for covenant discipline and accountability within the group and accountability of the group to the larger church body. The argument Wesley and later Methodists, such as Henry Fish quoted in chapter 5, employed for such structures seems to me unanswerable. It's a simple one. While such groups are not prescribed in Scripture, a level of Christian living is prescribed which fails to materialize without some form of small group structure. Some of the scriptures which are particularly pointed in this connection, but which have become meaningless to much of the contemporary church, are James 5.16, Hebrews 3.12 and 13, and Hebrews 10.24-25, 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Colossians 3.16, Romans 12.15, and Matthew 18 verses 15-18. These one another behaviors are lost to the church when it does not meet with sufficient frequency, intimacy, and commitment to let them develop. 3. The Wesleyan experience shows that the biblical emphasis on the priesthood of believers and the gifts of the Spirit is entirely practical and workable. Even or perhaps especially among the poor, a sizable proportion of Christian believers can become effective leaders and ministers, provided the vision and appropriate structures are present. All believers can be functioning members of the body. But this requires structures which provide the context for spiritual growth and opportunities for developing leadership. The insight that the Christian ministry is entrusted to the whole body of Christ is not just nice theory. It works when the body functions biblically, organically. The experience of John Wesley shows that most Christians suspect that the essential qualifications for effective redemptive ministry have little, if anything, to do with formal education or ecclesiastical status and everything to do with spiritual growth, maturity, and structural flexibility. On the other hand, Wesley would not long endure incompetence. He worked hard at training his helpers and traveling preachers. He practiced theological education by extension two centuries before anyone thought up the name. Preachers carried books and pamphlets for themselves and for others. They were expected constantly to improve the time by up to six hours daily in study. In addition, Wesley seldom traveled alone. He often took one or more helpers with him so they could observe and learn from him. He listened to his helpers preach and offered his criticism, advice, and encouragement. Number four. Wesley's experience shows the value of holding out before the church a high ideal of what God's grace can accomplish in personal experience and in society. The high and dynamic ideal of Christian perfection functioned within Methodism to sustain hope and optimism in the present life and served as a spur toward discipline and toward a high moral and ethical quest. To a large degree, Wesley saw the kingdom of God in terms of Christian perfection, Such a high idealism, firmly based in scripture and combining the sanctification and kingdom themes, is urgently needed in the present experience of the church. In the 20th century, one who combined holiness and kingdom themes effectively in a Wesleyan way was the Methodist evangelist and missionary E. Stanley Jones. Number five, Wesley's experience shows also the importance of the church being, in some sense, a sacramental community particularly when the body of believers feels the tension between the institutional and charismatic dimensions and between the present and future dimension of God's kingdom. 
It needs the continuing reconciling experience of the sense of sacrament. This comes to its fullest expression now in the frequent observance of the Lord's Supper. In this communion, believers come to sense and experience at a deeply symbolic, often mystical level, the sacramental or sign nature of the kingdom community. This enables the church itself to live sacramentally in the world. We have noted Wesley's strong emphasis on the Lord's Supper and his practice of constant communion. He strongly urged this upon his people. Constant use of the means of grace was to be the way to spiritual growth and vitality for Methodists. Even though with time Methodists lost much of this sacramental sense, the emphasis still remains valid. Final word. We come now to the end of our exploration of John Wesley and his view of the church. Much has been left unsaid. Many points could be explored in greater depth, both with reference to Wesley and his day and with reference to Scripture. I have restricted the discussion to tracing a broad perspective, zeroing in on questions of special importance for the shape of our Christian life together. We have spoken of radicality and synthesis. A synthesis, one could argue, is not very exciting. Synthesis sounds like stew. All of the ingredients boil down to one flavor. This is, in fact, the stale blandness of the via media, mere middle of the road. The radical extremes, by contrast, excite and invite. Wesley would argue, however, for a different brand of radicality. Neither the one-way extreme nor the boring balance of the middle road. The Wesleyan synthesis is valid to the extent it points to the biblical economy or oikonomia of God, which recognizes that the only way to the kingdom is the mystery and wonder and spiritual ecology of God's plan of redemption. Basic to God's economy that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 3.11, head of the church, is the life and witness of the Christian community, the church. John Wesley was a radical Christian precisely because radical Christianity is not a system of doctrine, but the experience of the body of Christ as a community of discipleship. Wesley learned what radical Christians today are beginning to stress. A really effective struggle for social justice begins with building a biblically faithful community of Christian disciples. What the world needs now is not radical Protestantism, but radical Christianity. In 2,000 years, the church has not noticeably improved on the gospel or on the biblical picture of Christian community and discipleship. One of the clearest lessons from 20th centuries of experience is that the church has always been most faithful when it has gotten back to its biblical, spiritual, social roots. Then it is freed to be most creative in challenging the spiritual, social, and economic crises of the day. This is the meaning of the Radical Wesley.